I contemplated canceling this evening because I've had a cold, so I'll back up a little bit. Um, I actually stayed home from work at Apple, but decided to come tonight. And part of the reason I decided to come tonight is because I'm going to kick back and sit down. And uh, actually, I had planned to let you guys do a little bit of the work, and I just uh, expanded a little bit. So we're going we're gonna to do what I often do anyway, and I'm just going to let you guys do it with me, partly because I'd love for you guys to have a, a, an insight into the process. It doesn't have to be the way you do it, um, but it's the kind of thing that also might uh, help you as you read Scripture as well. So what we're actually going to do is we're going to read straight through Colossians from beginning to end. I won't stop and talk, I promise. Okay, because that's what, this is often what I do, is I will read straight through without even stopping to ask questions, like I always do. And the second time I go through, I go through and I start looking at it more carefully and work my way through. So we're going to read straight through. We'll still take several weeks after that to go through Colossians. This isn't replacing uh, <laughs> our discussion of it. But specifically what I'd like you to do is as we, as we read straight through it, um, I, wa- I want you to be thinking of certain questions uh, that are answered as we're reading through it. Because we've talked about this before, that knowing who wrote something, who they wrote to, why they wrote, it's all in the text. Most commentaries take most of the material from the text. I will, uh, as we go through these questions and towards the end, give you guys some extra information that I happen to have had the time to look at, because it's not like I haven't actually already done this. Um, But I just want to also give you guys a chance to just kind of think through these questions. So here's the questions I want you to think through as we read straight through, okay? Some of them will be pretty easy to answer. Some of them will not. So we're going to read straight through. Then we'll come back and talk about these. So if you actually want to write down answers as you see them, you're welcome to do that. If you just want to remember them, you're welcome to do that. But I want you to, I want you to be able to answer as we read through this, who wrote it, uh, who's it being written to, or to whom is it being written, for my English graduate over there, uh, what is the author's relationship with the recipients, what prompted the letter, is it a reply or an initial letter? And then why is it being written? What's the point? These are the kind of things we often discuss, right? When we go into Ephesians, we discuss these things. And so does everybody understand the questions? Okay, good. So think through those. There's one more I'm going to ask you to think about at at the end, too. What similarities do you see between this and the letter to the Ephesians, and what differences do you see? Because there will be some similarities, but it's not identical. So it might be interesting to kind of discuss that. And then we have one more we'll discuss after we do that. All right, so... Uh, it's up to you guys. Would, would you guys like to read portions of Colossians or, or since I'm making you work at thinking, would you rather I just read it out loud? So Meredith wants to read the first chapter. <laughs> awesome. Go for it. <laughs> I don't care. It was close enough. <laughs> just read. And I know that you'll read loud and clearly and I know you're a good reader. So there you go. Go for it. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, oh no, you're okay. Sorry. Just go. Ignore me. Okay. I think a lot of times, you know, Colossians is pretty short. It didn't really take us a long time to read through the whole thing, right? Just read straight through. I think a lot of times if you're going to spend time, you know, studying and reading something, it's good to read it. We were on the way here. Jerome was even talking about Hebrews. We were talking about Hebrews. Um, and, uh, Lorian was asking, is that one going to take a long time? I said, probably, um, and Jerome said, there's so much in Hebrews. And then Jerome said, I always have to read it like at one sitting. And I said, that's really smart. Because a lot of us don't do that. Particularly with something like Hebrews, we pick and choose. So I think it's good just to step back and read the whole thing. So now we've read the whole thing. Having done that, there, there are a lot of answers. You may not have everything, but there's a lot of answers here. Let's talk through it. Let's think through it. Think about what you just read. Um, you can also obviously bring into play what you know from Acts and what you know from Ephesians. I mean, anything else that seems relevant. Can, can go in, can inform our discussion here. Um, and if you've read something in a commentary, I won't like shoot you if you share it, but let's try to grab it from the text as much as we can for right now. You know, either Acts, Ephesians, Colossians, something we've read, okay? So number one, who wrote it? <clears throat> What's that? <laughs> somebody, somebody, uh, Somebody read the uh, first few verses. It does. So again, our immediate, our immediate rush to Jesus or to Paul is correct, but there's no reason to believe he's the sole author of this. 
He includes Timothy at the front end. He, there's a lot of other people with him. We discovered that at the end, right? He's like, Tychicus is coming, and Onesimus is coming, and there's a lot of other people with him. They're not all given credit as, as having written this letter. But Paul does give credit to Timothy. So it's, it's very fair to say that he and, and Timothy wrote this together. We don't know what that means, right? We know that Paul writes the greeting at the end in his own hand because he says so, right? So he's got a big part of it. But even that's unusual. Why is he writing it in his own hand? I don't know. Maybe just the greeting, just as a personal touch. Um, but let's not ignore that Timothy has some input in some fashion in some way in this letter. Okay? So Paul and Timothy both. All right? What do we know about Paul and Timothy? Let's, let's expand that a little bit. Where is Paul? He's in prison. If you didn't know that from the book of Acts, you would know it from this text itself, right? He says it like three times at the end. Think of me while I'm in prison, in case you forgot I'm in prison. Hey, I'm in prison. You know, it's like, oh, he's in prison. <laughs> so when he talks about the suffering that he's gone through and that he rejoices in the suffering, he's talking very specifically about what's happening right now, right? He's in prison. Doesn't know if he's going to live or not. Okay. So he's writing from prison. What do we know about Timothy? Anything? Have we encountered Timothy so far? We have. Not a great deal. We haven't gotten to Timothy, the books of First and Second Timothy yet. But we know that he's a companion of Paul's and a good companion of Paul's, right? Um, what's that? Right. Right. Good point. So why, why, would, why was he not circumcised already? What does that tell us about him? He's, yeah, he's actually half. If you guys remember back to, uh, and, and that's okay that you don't, but, but he actually had a Jewish grandmother and a Greek uh, father, and what that means about his mother, I don't know. Maybe she was half. He might be a quarter. Because specifically, we're told his grandmother was Jewish. Um, so yeah, so he was kind of a, a mix, which is a, a mark against you to begin with, right? Um, in the Jewish world, but not in the Christian world, because Paul spent a lot of time talking about how we're all one. doesn't matter. But this is Timothy. He's a good reflection of that whole thing. He's kind of a perfect... Poster child for the unity of the church. <laughs> and yes, he's uncircumcised, which is interesting. Anytime Paul talks about circumcision. So that may give us a hint as to why he credits Timothy to writing part of this, because does he talk about circumcision at all in this letter? He does. He does. And in fact, at the end, he talks about he has certain coworkers that are with him that are part of the circumcision, meaning that are Jews. But he uses the phrase part of the circumcision to say a lot of my workers, and he says these are the only coworkers that are part of the circumcision. He's making a point. A lot of people that work with me for the gospel aren't even Jews. Seems to be a point he wants to make. Okay? And by the way, he, doesn't, he includes Timothy not in that group because he's not part of the circumcision, even if he is partly Jewish, which he is partly for sure. Okay, so Paul and Timothy, we know that. A lot of other people he mentions at the end. Anybody have any thoughts on any of those guys? It is. If you were to guess, does Aristarchus sound like a Jewish name? Doesn't, does it? What does it sound like? It sounds Roman. Um, so, uh, or, or Greek. Okay, the, the lines are really mushy at this point in the, in the world, uh, in the history of the Bible here. Yeah, it could be Greek. So, but either way, probably a Gentile. So why does he send greetings? Does he know them? I don't know. Or is he just a recent convert from his time in the cell? I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. I always think it's fun to see, like, characters, cast of characters that we've met before. So it's kind of fun to see Luke, you know, pop up. Oh, Luke's here. And, again, not a big surprise because Luke is, when we left the book of Acts, Luke had chronicled up to this point and then stopped. That doesn't mean Luke left. Luke has stayed to help Paul however he can. He may, in fact, be staying to be prepared to present his brief, if that's what the book of Acts was, right? We talked about that may have been his defense for Caesar. And so Luke's hanging out to be ready to prepare that. And we were told that Paul's under house arrest, and he's allowed to have his friends come help him take care of his needs. So Luke is one of those people. It's just kind of good to remember, oh, yeah, Luke's a real person. He wrote the book of Acts, but he's actually still hanging out with Paul. It's kind of a, it's kind of a neat thing. And he even speaks very fondly of Luke, doesn't he? He says something like, dear, dear Luke, or beloved Luke, or something like that, doesn't he? 
you can tell he's just like, gosh, I like this guy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I love this guy. He's just here. Anybody else? Any other names you recognize? He is. And that you probably just knew from, because we haven't run into him yet. Where do we run, where do we run into him again? Yeah. Onesimus, in fact, is the subject of the book of Philemon. He is. He's a runaway slave. So when he says Onesimus is coming back to you uh, and he's one of you, there's a whole lot in that. Because he's basically saying, don't kill this guy for, for running away. And he gives more specific, specific instructions to Philemon. Why does he give more specific instructions to Philemon? Because Philemon owns Onesimus. <laughs> yeah. So presumably the letter of Colossians, the letter of Philemon are probably sent at the same time. Does that make sense? We're going to read Philemon next, but it probably traveled with Onesimus and with uh, Tychicus at the same time. It's probably just two letters in the same delivery. And we'll read that later. Any, anything else you notice in the names before we go on? Just kind of getting our cast of characters in place here. Yeah, it's always a good idea to volunteer to read before the last chapter when Paul says hi to everybody. Yep, and we learned that. That's a good one. It's interesting. He mentions Mark and Barnabas, and he tells us that Mark is Barnabas's cousin. Now, is this John Mark that they had their big argument about, and is this partly why Barnabas defended Mark? Was because they're, they're blood? Um, I don't know. We're not sure on that. Um, either way, it's an interesting couple of names to see in connection with each other. And Barnabas, whom he had this huge split with, is apparently reconnected with Paul, which is good to know, too. What does it say? Oh, you're right. It doesn't say that. You're right. So possibly he's reconnected with Mark, if this is the same Mark, which would be good. Good. Any, any, anything else? Any other names that come up? There's one name that comes up two or three times. I don't know if we have or not, but his name definitely comes up three times in this letter. It comes up in the first chapter, comes up in the last chapter. That's Epaphras. Hold on to that Epaphras thought. We'll come back to that as we discuss a little bit more later. Don't believe it was Epaphras, if that's where you're going. Does it? Eutychus. No, it wasn't Eutychus. I don't, I don't remember. All right, so who's it being written to? I heard quiet answers. The church at Colossae. Excellent. Uh, which part of the church at Colossae? The believing part or the unbelieving part? Oh, it's a trick question. It's written to this community, right? What was that? It does. It does. So the presumption is believing, brothers. It's just a reminder. Mostly I'm just pointing out it's a reminder. When Paul writes to the church, he writes as if they're all believers, but he knows it's a mixed group. And we very often get tangled up. We do this with Hebrews, for example. We get tangled up in this question of, is this written to believers or unbelievers? An example in, in Hebrews that really drives me nuts is... Um, Lorian's just been through a Bible as a late class, and one of the things that Bible's literature teachers love to do, anybody who doesn't believe in prophecy, they love to re-chronologically order all the prophets because they have to place them all after the events that they prophesy about, right? Because otherwise, how could they know these things? That would be crazy. So, so they do that, but what they do, like with the book of Isaiah, they literally end up splitting Isaiah right in the middle of a verse, right in the middle of a sentence, literally. They're like, well, this first part of the sentence, we know because the Dead Sea Scrolls had to have occurred at this time. But the last part of that sentence prophesies something that Isaiah couldn't have known about, so we'll put that 150 years later. I mean, it's crazy. I know. It does. So, <laughs> but here's what, the reason I mention that is because in Hebrews, sometimes Christians do the same thing. They'll take a verse and say, the first part of this verse is clearly written to unbelievers, and the second part of this verse is clearly written to believers. And I'm like, really, Paul, in the middle of a sentence, just suddenly started speaking to different people? It's so we, we just get really knotted up about that. And I just, one of our epistolatory rules that we talked about at the beginning is, Paul doesn't sit down and think, okay, now I'm writing to people who don't believe. Now I'm writing to people who do believe. He sits down and writes to a church, and he says, as a whole, they're believers. Are, is it possible there are people who don't understand the gospel fully and therefore may not believers? Yes. So am I going to share the gospel accurately for them as well? Yes. <laughs> okay. So again, just a reminder, kind of as we go forward. All right. 
That's totally what you do in a church. You're absolutely right. You don't in the middle of, I mean, actually we do sometimes. You might in the middle of a sermon say, now maybe you're not a believer, but you don't even usually do that, right? You just usually talk to everybody and then you get, let people make the choice for themselves. And that's what Paul does. You're correct. It's what you do when you speak to groups. You just can't, can't go through and figure it out. Yeah. And in a church, when you speak, look, I speak to a number of different churches now, right? Now I'm in a situation where I go and I talk to different churches. <laughs> I always assume when I go in, not, not that I actually assume, but for the purposes of speaking, I assume that if they're there on Sunday morning, they're believers. I give them the benefit of the doubt. I don't go in with the skepticism that they are. I don't really know, but it makes more sense to share from that perspective. All right. So Colossians, uh, what do we know about Colossae? Does anybody know anything about Colossae? What's that? It is, that's a good question. I had a map, and I, I left all those pictures at home. Yeah, who has a, who has a cheat sheet? Where is it? It's a, it's Turkey. It's modern day Turkey. I will show you my pretty pictures next week. I actually have pictures of excavations they're doing in Colise right now, um, which would have been fascinating to look at. And you'll just have to wait till next week. Uh, all right. So, what is the author's relationship with the recipients? Can you tell? <laughs> from this letter. So by way of example, <coughs> what was what was Paul's relationship <coughs> with the Ephesians? <coughs> it was very close, right? He knew them. He'd been with them for 2 to 3 years. He had he had discipled them personally. He had discipled the elders that were now discipling them. It was very very close. So that's an example. Oh, so Jerome thinks that his relationship with the Colossians probably wasn't very close. Why do you why do you say that? Yeah, I th- very smart. Very smart. The way he says that, from the day we first heard about you. He didn't say that to the Ephesians, right? That's another good point, too. He doesn't say, I taught you the gospel. I shared it with you. So who did? This brings us back to Epaphras. Okay, so I think it's fair to say that Epaphras is heavily involved in the planting of this church. He might potentially be the church planter of this church. Epaphras? <laughs> Jerome's already working on it. <laughs> you know, I, I thought that once upon a time too, but show me the verse where it looks like it's saying there's some he hasn't met. That is one way to read it, but if you read the verse that I think you're referring to, it may not say that at all. He says, to you and to those in Laodicea and to all those who haven't met me. That doesn't mean he's met any of them face to face. It could, in fact, be a summary. He could be saying to the Colossians, to the Laodiceans, and to all who haven't seen me face to face. I understand, because I, 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 you can also read it as, as an extra, another number in the list, or you can read it as a summary of the list. <laughs> Um, I actually think, and I'll, I'll just, I'll, 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 I'll cheat on our own rules a little bit cause I'm allowed to. Um, I actually think he hasn't met any of them. Yeah. N- neither Laodicea nor Colossae. And I think that's the answer. I think that when you read that, it does sound like he's saying to people here and, and especially those who I haven't met, but I think he's actually saying, I haven't met any of you. And exactly, exactly. Yep. Anybody in that area, in the Colossae, Laodicea, and he mentions another one, right? Yeah, there's actually, no, there are three cities very close to each other. Laodicea, Colossae, and the other one he mentions at the end of the book. Hierapolis, yeah, which sounds, that sounds like what we would make up as a Roman city if we were trying to. Um, But uh, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae are kind of a little triumvirate of cities right next to each other. And Paul is saying he hasn't, he hasn't met these people in any of them. Um, okay, so so good. So Paul's relationship is a little distant. I mean, in terms of actual meeting them. He still writes very warmly, right? He has a way of doing that, though. He did that with the Thessalonians, who we also had never met, if you remember correctly. So here he is. He's writing to the, to the, to the Colossians. He hasn't met them. 
And we know that he knows Epaphras, who has probably not only met them, but may have planted the church in Colossae. And if you read carefully in Laodicea too, it looks to me, in fact, like Epaphras may have started Laodicea. He may be from Laodicea and then planted a church in, in Colossae. Tell me. That's an interesting switch of tense, isn't it? Yeah. Pronoun. I don't know. We'll think about it. We'll see why he does. I don't know why he does that necessarily. Well, except that, except because he's getting broader. So not only you, but everybody who hasn't. Okay. So, but but that thought. Uh. Well, before we get to why he's being, what prompted the letter? So we know what prompts some letters. To the Corinthians, what prompted the letter was they had a bunch of questions, right? To the um, Galatians, what prompted the letter was a bunch of heresy that he wanted to fix, right? To the Ephesians, what prompted the letter was he missed them. I mean, I think that, you know, he just wanted to give them more depth. What prompted the letter to the Colossians? Do we have any thoughts? You might have to speculate a little bit, so feel free to do so. Any ideas from reading this, what might have prompted it? Why, why is he writing? Not, not what is his point yet, but what prompted him writing at all. Um, yes, good. Other thoughts? I think because he's in jail and probably they're talking about him in the church and people are wondering who is this guy because they keep bringing him up and he says, oh, by the way, I'm here, I'm in jail and yeah, I know all these people and they've all talked to you and we're all good, so this is who I am. I think it's more Could be. an introduction to, to that church. To Could be. So let me, let me hone it in even a little more specifically. There's, from, this reminds us, as we read about this, oh, wow, this Colossae, this Laodicea, there's these churches he's never touched. He's never planted. If these churches he's never planted, there's probably others. And I will tell you this. Colossae is a nothing town right now. Once upon a time, it was really important. But in recent years, it's become next to unimportant at all. And in fact, we know that about a year after he writes this, the entire city is destroyed by an earthquake. It becomes a nothing city. <laughs> so it's not like a lot of the cities he's written to where the churches are huge and the cities are really big and important. So of all the little cities that he's not had no contact with, why write to Colossae? So somebody suggested he write them. Any idea who? Yeah, I think it's pretty self-evident that Epaphras, he's been talking to Epaphras, Right? Somewhere in here, he's had a connection with Epaphras. My guess is, in fact, that Epaphras came to visit. Uh, in much the same, because that's how you tend to get a letter, right? You can't drop it in the post office. So Epaphras probably came to Paul because, so what this tells us is that Epaphras knows Paul. So then our question becomes, why does Epaphras know Paul? And I don't expect you to know the answer to this because nobody really does. But I will say that it's certainly not a stretch we're told that at one point when Paul was in Ephesus, people from all over the area, all over the region came to hear him speak, which would certainly include people from Laodicea, which could certainly include Epaphras, which could certainly be where Epaphras heard the message and then was inspired and went back and planted his own church. It, it, do we know that's what happened? No, but it makes sense. The, the main point is somewhere in his journeys, Paul encountered Epaphras, because otherwise why is Epaphras out planting a church? I mean, he must have encountered somebody. And it makes sense that it was Paul because Paul's the one who knows him now. And so now Epaphras has kept up with Paul, finds out Paul's in prison, comes to visit him, and talks about what's happening at Colossae and Laodicea. So I think it's this discussion with Epaphras that prompts Paul's writing. There's another reason, though. We've already discussed it. What else prompted Paul's writing? Who came possibly with Epaphras or possibly by himself? I suspect with Epaphras. Onesimus. I think Timothy was already with Paul. Onesimus, this runaway slave, came to Paul. Why did he come to Paul? Why would a runaway slave go to a prisoner? <laughs> it's kind of an irony there. Think about it. I don't know, except that he may have run away. You know, he may have even had help by Epaphras. Can you imagine the kind of conflict that's going on in the churches with slaves? Where there probably are those who probably wanted to help slaves run away. 
And there were probably those who thought we shouldn't do that. And so here's Epaphras, and he brings Onesimus, and maybe they came to Paul to say, what we, we, we ran off, and now we're not sure if we should have. <laughs> what if we do? <laughs> you know, help us. So I think those people, one fashion or another, prompted these letters, okay? Um, and I think in that sense, it's an initial letter. It's a reply in the sense that he's sort of replying to Epaphras, but I don't think there was an official letter from Colossae because they didn't have any reason to write him, Okay. Um, a couple things you guys brought up I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tweak you to think about a little bit. One is, Meredith said it seemed like there was a lot of things kind of covered broadly, but not any really specific thing he digs into. I think there's, in fact, one thing he digs into very specifically, but we're so used to seeing it, we kind of don't notice it, but we'll talk about it in a second. Second thing is, I think Paul spends a lot less time defending himself in this letter than he does in some of his others. So I think the questions about who Paul was are, are less significant than they are, say, with the Corinthians or the Thessalonians. He really doesn't spend a lot of time saying, I'm an apostle, here's my authority, listen to me. He just kind of says, here's what I'm going to tell you. <laughs> and I think he's counting on Epaphras and, and Tychicus and whoever else to kind of carry the weight. All right. Now, why is it being written? What is Paul addressing? I contend he deals with something very deeply and significantly for the first two to three chapters. So he is, he is talking about the gospel's uniqueness. Anything else he says about the gospel specifically here? He actually talks a lot about that. Chapter 3 is kind of the Hidden Life Conference in a nutshell. I could literally pull out Chapter 3 and use it and cover everything I cover in the Hidden Life Conference. He really does get very sort of down and dirty about that. Good. What else? Spends a lot of time on that. I think there's a couple other things. So I'm going I'm to keep fishing for a little bit because let's see if. But these are all very true answers. Hold them. We're going to come back to them. But I think there's a couple other things. Something about the gospel specifically, another characteristic of the gospel in their time. Not just that it's unique, but it's something else. There's something else about it as well. And then there's still one thing, almost even more fundamental than. If you were to like, take, how can you take a step back from the gospel? What's even more fundamental than that? I think there is something more fundamental than that he deals with. Before he even gets to the new nature, he spends the entire first chapter talking about it. Yeah, and who is the one God? Yeah. He, this letter, more than any other letter Paul writes, delves into the deity of Jesus. I think he talks very intensely about that Jesus is God and that he is over everything and in everything and controls everything and holds everything together. He is everything. It's, it's impossible to read the first chapter without walking away with that. Good. And the other thing, I'll just tell you, because I don't know that you would get it or see it. The other thing he mentioned about the gospel, not only that it's unique, he does talk about it's unique from other things, but he also talks about how prevalent it is. It's like he doesn't want them to think it's so unique that they're the only ones who know it. He talks about how all over the world people are hearing the same things you heard. All over the world, it's spreading and building fruit. It's like he wants them to know they're not alone, right? Does that make sense? He wants to kind of emphasize, and you'll see it when we go back through chapter 1. He wants to emphasize it's the same gospel you heard. Because I think there's a question. He's afraid they have a question that maybe what they've heard is an offshoot and it's some kind of weird thing and they're not sure if it's right. And they want to make sure they've got it right. Which again might be why Epaphras was like, Paul, we need your authority. That goes back to a little bit what Robert said. We need you to tell us, yes, this is the gospel. (laughs) It is actually this. And so he does two things. He focuses on Jesus and he focuses on how it impacts us in the new creation. Because that's probably the bottom line. Sure. (laughs) 
So in a second, I want to I talk about the similarities with Ephesians first, but in a second, I'm going to come back to this. Why is it being written? We're going to dig in a little deeper in this way. What I want you to start thinking about is, yeah, we've just discussed what the points he wants to make, and they were all really good and really accurate. The uniqueness of the gospel, the, the new creation, the new identity, the how you ought to live your life, the, um, the, 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 the fundamental centrality of Christ, um, the, the, the prevalence of the gospel. That's all there. We still haven't discussed why he addresses those topics. In other words, he could address those topics with anybody. Why specifically with the Colossians does he go after those topics? And the answer that most commentators give you is he's addressing the Colossian heresy. And if it sounds odd to you to name an entire heresy after one church, it's because we don't know exactly what the Colossian heresy is. (laughs) But I think we can make a pretty good stab at knowing what it is based upon what he addresses. Does that make sense? In other words, he tells them what's important because it's the very things they're not sure about. Um, and so in a second, we're going to dig into that. And I want to see if we can pull And I'm going to challenge you guys to go ahead and find some specific verses that tell you what he's addressing. And look for the places where he says, don't do this, because that's probably what they're doing, right? Um, okay, before we do that, though, what similarities do you see between this letter and the letter to the Ephesians? He does. Yep. He does indeed. Yeah. You're absolutely right. He follows the same structure in the latter chapters that he did in Ephesians, where he talks about how you live as a community, then how you live as a family, then how you live as an individual. He kind of follows that same structure. May just be because he just did it. And, and once you write a letter and you're writing another one, it makes sense to kind of just follow what worked. That's true. Before we go to Meredith, hold that thought. Do you see any differences in the way he does it here, that, that specific thing? Do you see any differences with his discussion of those topics from the way he did it to the, to the Ephesians? Anybody? <laughs> you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Remember the whole marriage thing in Ephesians where it was like suddenly he's talking about the washing of the saints and the blood. of He's like, wah! He kind of gets, he's like, wow, this is amazing. He doesn't do any of that at this section in Colossians. He's just like, you know, wives be good to your husbands, husbands love your wives, and then he moves on. He doesn't go into that. Well, so why? Why, why is that different, do you think? I think that's part of it, the relationship. <laughs> he was better rested for Ephesians. <laughs> Um, True. Doesn't go into that either. I think to some degree they're not ready for it. Remember the Ephesians he had a real intimacy with. He had a relationship with. He knew exactly where they were and what they could handle. And so he goes into these everything. He doesn't say anything simply in Ephesians. You know what I mean? It's like he feels freedom to be who he is and to become very rhetorical at times. Not meaning, not rhetorical as in irrelevant. Rhetorical as in the re- real use of the word. He, he, and so, but with the Colossians, he doesn't know them as well. So he, you know, think about it. If he said to the Colossians the same thing he said to the Ephesians about wives and husbands, they might be confused. They might be like, what is he asking us to do? <laughs> we don't know this guy. You know, what does he mean? You know, what is this? What, I don't understand. Now all of a sudden we're supposed to make our, you know, he might have the same confusion we sometimes have in American, right? Because we don't know him. But the Ephesians knew it. So he knew they'd understand where he was coming from. Also, I think he doesn't want to clutter it up. He just wants to keep it focused on Jesus and the new nature. Um, plus, he's also expounded quite a bit in those first three chapters on some of those things. So he didn't need to go into that. Um, okay, good. What, what other similarities? The word mystery, I, I like that because, again, it's, it's interesting that he kind of started that in Ephesians. That's the first time we hear him use it regularly. He talks about the mystery and how amazing the mystery is. Colossians, he uses the word again a couple times. You brought it up. But does he define the mystery the same way in Ephesians and Colossians? Interestingly enough, he doesn't. <laughs> I mean, you could argue he does. You could argue that at the bottom line, it's all the same. 
But in Ephesians, what, how did he describe the mystery? What was the mystery? Does anybody remember kind of what the emphasis of the mystery was in Ephesians? That's it. It was the church itself. The church was the mystery. It was the Gentiles and the Jews coming together and becoming one through the gospel. It was the reconciliation of all people. In Colossians, what is he, how does he kind of define the mystery? Yeah. Here again, what's the emphasis in Colossians? It's the centrality of Christ. So in Ephesians, he really wants to talk about the church, how important the church is as the body of Christ. In, Col- in Colossae, he doesn't want to get them confused and start thinking they're more central than Christ is, right? Shh. My phone's buzzing at me. Um, so when he talks about the mystery there, he's just like, if I were to, and even the phrase, namely, it's like he wants to just drill down to the bare essence. He's like the mystery. And just to put it simply, Christ, <laughs> you know, he's the mystery. He is, he is everything because that's the point of Colossians is he is everything. He is your new life. He is your new righteousness. He is the universe. He holds everything together. He is all this. But there's another reason he uses the word mystery, and we'll get to that in a little bit. What else do we see that's similar? He does. He does. And in some ways, it's similar to a lot of what he writes because it's still him, right? (laughs) And other things are going to be similar because I think literally he wrote the letter to the Ephesians weeks, days, you know, not long before this. So maybe a year, but it's, it's there. It's fresh. He's got it. He does. He does. He acknowledges that here as well. I agree. That's a good point. Good similarity. By the way, on the who is he writing to, I did forget one (coughs) relevant point we should acknowledge. He specifically instructs them to do what with the letter after they've had it read to them. Send it to the Laodiceans and have them read it as well. So he is writing really to both. What is he? (laughs) What interesting point does he make at that same time? Yeah, where's that? What happened to the, the church to the Laodiceans in our scriptures? Apparently he made a mistake in that one. He, he wrote heresy in that one. So, No, uh, it, who knows? You know, it just, again, it's a reminder. How many letters did Paul write that we have never seen? Because they don't all survive. You know, God preserved what needed to be preserved. But not everything survived. So there's this letter to Laodicea that didn't make it to us. My guess is, it's probably really similar. Even though he wanted them to exchange it with each other, I'm guessing they're pretty similar letters, would be my guess. Don't you think? There may have been some specific things for the Laodiceans that were important and relevant to them. I know. <laughs> That's true. That's true, yeah. And, and honestly, God probably, he wants us to read his Bible, so he's literally like, well, this letter's the same as the other one, so that one can disappear, you know. <laughs> Um, or it's possible that, I mean, I, I personally have no conflict with the idea that Paul wrote some things occasionally that were not exactly right. And so God's like, well, this is not going to go in the inspired canon. <laughs> I, I can believe that. I've occasionally preached things that weren't exactly right. Once, maybe, twice. Um, any, other, any other similarities? Or big contrast? does yep 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 part of that that whole cycle again the community and the church community the marketplace the family and individually how you ought to live and he emphasizes remember what were the three big things we talked about in the community in ephesians there were three things we said that would reflect a mature community do you remember what they were transparency love gratitude yep thankfulness works i'll accept that We'll give you credit for that answer. You win the prize. Uh, gratitude, love, and transparency. And interestingly enough, he does identify, again, less, less in depth, less flowery, but he does identify those same three things for them. He says, you, you know, love each other, be grateful, sing hymns and psalms, thanksgiving, and be transparent. 
just be honest with each other. So I think there's definitely a sort of a flow that Paul is in his mature years here. He's, he's seeing as part of what a mature community should look like. And he just emphasizes it again. All right, good. Now let's talk specifically about the Colossian heresy. As we read through the whole thing, what are some of the warnings? What are some of the things? What do you think? And, and assume that the Colossian, by the way, here's what most people assume, and I think it's a reasonable assumption, and we'll go with it for now in order to save time. Assume that not everything about the Colossian heresy is brand new. I mean, assume that you've seen some of it in other churches and some of it in other places. The only reason it's called the Colossian heresy is because it seems to be a mixture of things. It seems to be more than one sort of thing. But that doesn't mean you won't see things you saw before. So feel free to, to say, oh, we saw that in this place, or we saw that in that. Let's just talk. What are some of the things that, that, uh, that might go into what we call the Colossian heresy? Yeah, what makes you say that? Because you know. <laughs> I think that's a good guess. That's probably true in every church. Is there anything, uh, well, I'll, I believe it's also in the text. What in the text might indicate that's on Paul's mind a little bit? I think less so than with Ephesians, because it doesn't go into the mystery that way. But is there anything in the text that makes you think he wants to remind them that Gentiles and Jews are the same? He does. He does. So the, the unity, something about unity, something about recognizing we're all the same. We're on the same playing field here. Um, is really important to him. Because he not only limits it to Jew and Gentile here, he goes into detail about Scythian and barbarian and slave and master. And and slave and master might be on his mind because of the whole Onesimus thing, right? <laughs> it's like, well, he's here. Male and, Is this one where he talks about male and female? That may just be in Galatians. So that's apparently not as big an issue right here. What else? Meredith, you had a thought? Excellent. So Okay, good. So he's I, that's excellent. He's he's identifying the mystery that is Christ and saying don't let anybody take you captive by hollow philosophies um that depend on the traditions of this world. The question is and I think what you've done is you've hit on the nutshell summary statement that says he is dealing with the Colossian heresy he is here. Question is, what are those philosophies? As you read around that area that you're in, can you see some examples of what those hollow, deceptive philosophies might be? Okay. Cool. So something about this heresy has to do with just being complicated, yeah. just kind of making it more difficult. So you said a couple things, and it's really hard to write with my finger, but you said a couple things. Um, yes. One, and I get to write what you actually say, which I couldn't predict. Um, 
fine-sounding argument. So there's this, this intellectual component to it, which is arguing against the simplicity of the gospel. And I'm going to show you a text that says you may be onto something. But you also mentioned hard work. There's, you know, there's all these things we have to do. Um, I'll let you guys point to some text in that because that's a little easier. But one thing, just tie this into what we talked about earlier, where I said that he's talking about the prevalence of the gospel. Can you see how if you're in Colossae, you're this unimportant city, and you got people coming in and saying, yeah, yeah, we heard all this grace stuff. You know, Paphras, who's a Paphras? He's just this guy. And he told us this grace stuff. But there's all these other things you got to do. That's what the real gospel is. Epaphras got it wrong. That would lead Paul to say, hey, the gospel you accepted is the same gospel that's going out all over the world. You didn't get it wrong. I mean, to me, that fits. That he's kind of trying to pull back to the simplicity and say, no, you were right first. You were right in the simplicity. Don't be deceived. Don't be fooled by all these people who are trying to make it more complicated. It's not that complicated. It's the same gospel you heard. And even identifying... You heard it from Epaphras. He's immediately saying, Epaphras is right. How often in these letters does Paul actually identify somebody and say, they are completely right? Usually he's like, well, they're kind of right, and they're kind of right, and here's what you, you know. And, but here he is with Epaphras. He's like, nope, Epaphras was right. I mean, he wants to, he's just like, this is it. All right. Um, what are some texts that shows us that their heresy included some degree of legalism or hard work? Totally. We have seen that before. Yep, yep. The Corinthians definitely were into the eating and drinking thing, weren't they? (laughs) Exactly right. That's exactly right. And even when he gets to those things, as we talked about, he's really light with them. He doesn't talk about them a lot. It's like he's like, the grace covered everything. Sure, here's some things you should do, which will just help you live better and reflect it. But he doesn't want, again, to confuse him that these are the things you have to do. That's, I think, another reason he doesn't go into detail about what it means to love your wife the way he did in Ephesus, because he didn't think they would be confused. He figured the Ephesians would get it. They would understand. He's not telling them, do this to earn grace. But the Colossians, he wasn't so sure about. Man, what a bummer if you're just like flipping through. Yeah. Just happened to be going past, you know? Yeah. What's that? It's over. Well, if it's a country station, you just put it in the rewind. And it's like, but Jesus, really, I was going right past it, I promise. That's. It is. It's totally. Right. Right. Again, you can see the emphasis on Christ. Why, why start that in the first chapter or two? Because it's that simple. Why say the mystery, namely Christ? Why make it that simple? You know, don't get into the, the unity between the Gentiles and the Greeks. Don't even get into the new nature yet. Just start first by saying the gospel, the mystery is Christ. That's it. Uh, Don has raised her hand several times, then we'll come back to Lorraine. Judaizers is the official name for those. (laughs) I was wondering if anyone was going to get to this one. Yep. And that the second person doesn't 
That's supposed to say visions up in the edge, but I can't. I ran out of room. Okay, there is something that ties together a number of the things that you mentioned, but not all of them completely, which is why we don't just call the Colossian heresy Gnosticism. It's very similar to Gnosticism. But then you get this angel worship thing. And you're kind of like, well, that's not exactly Gnostic. I'm not sure where that comes from, what that means. But let's let, just briefly, because you, you hit on many of the important elements of Gnosticism, let's talk about what Gnosticism is. We've seen it a few times before. We even talked about it before, but just as a reminder, there are certainly elements of that in the Colossian church. And it does, by the way, if Gnosticism is becoming, in various forms, the most important and destructive heresy, it would also explain why Paul has started using the word mystery. Because Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis. Does anybody remember what gnosis means? It means knowledge. means to know. We talk about an agnostic, which means one who doesn't know, right? So when you talk about Gnosticism, it's, it's a religion based on knowledge. The most enlightened are the most spiritual. The ones who have achieved, it's, it's really, think of the way most Americans think of Buddhism or Zen Buddhism. That is a Gnostic religion. We don't talk about it in those terms, but that's what it is. Because the idea is you reach a certain moment of enlightenment, and that, that enlightenment is what saves you, is what makes you who you are. So that is one branch of Gnosticism, is this idea that knowing the secret, uh, actually, the, the contemporary version of Gnosticism, and it is totally Gnosticism. In this, in this, the format I've described so far, there's another piece relating to Jesus we'll get to in a second, is the secret. Right? Remember the book, The Secret? What was that all about? Read The Secret, know the, you know, if you, if you are enlightened and you get The Secret, then you, you get it. You're saved. Everything works. You're in control of the world. Um, that is a Gnostic religion. That is a Gnostic heresy. It doesn't have much relation to Christianity. These Gnostic heresies connected to Jesus, and we'll talk about that in, in a second, in ways that, again, Paul is counteracting in his first chapter. But that's one thing is they were all about the mystery. Those who knew the mystery, those who didn't know the mystery. Those who were enlightened, those who weren't. So Paul starts talking about the gospel in the way that he does, because when he sees what's happening, he relates. He's like, I'm going to put this in terms you understand. He's in Athens. He's like, oh, you're looking for the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. Let me talk to you in ways that Socrates would talk to you. Now he knows that Gnosticism is starting to kind of, and there is every reason to believe Gnosticism was the major heresy that threatened the church. Um, In fact, it's so funny because some of the problems we still have today, you've heard of the, the Gospel of Thomas. There's people who want to say the Gospel of Thomas was a real gospel and the Gospel of um, Mary Magdalene was a real gospel. These all came later, but these are all Gnostic Gospels. The fact they still are problematic to us is, is interesting because they arose from this heresy. People just took the names of these other apostles to try to make them sound Christian. Dan Brown wrote a whole book based on Gnostic heresy, which was a huge bestseller for a while, right? <laughs> And, <laughs> and, there are, and so, so Gnosticism is definitely part of what's going on in Colossae. This idea of mystery and knowledge and that there's people who have visions and they're prophets and they know things you don't know. And so they're all puffed up. I am more enlightened. Listen to me. What you've heard is too simple, not complex enough. We're going to give you the complicated story. That's going to prove with our fine sounding arguments that we're smarter than you are, that we know what's going on. If you just follow our enlightenment, we'll bring it to you. By the way, there's a lot of them. Scientology is a Gnostic religion, right? It's all about stages of enlightenment. You pay lots of money for each stage of enlightenment, right? It's, it's, it's a very common sort of heresy because people like to be in the know. People want to know the secret. People want to hold on to that, that little thing. And so Paul is saying, yeah, there is kind of a mystery. There is this thing about if you know something, it has to do with your salvation. But it's just Christ. <laughs> That's it. It's nothing more complicated than that. You know Christ? You got it. Which leads to the second aspect of the Gnostic heresies, not so much today, although you still see this in places like Dan Brown, but, but definitely back then. And that's the question of whether Jesus actually came in the flesh or not. Whether he was fully God and fully man or not, which is the other aspect you got to. There was a, a connection. There was a, there was a piece of Gnosticism. There was, there was this thing that is kind of, it's not directly bought into the Enlightenment thing, but it's connected, and at the time of Jesus, it was, or at the time of the early church, it became connected very strongly. The idea that the flesh, your physical body, inhibits enlightenment. 
So full enlightenment comes essentially when you shed your body. You do see this in Buddhism, by the way. This is the point of Buddhism, is to get to a place where you quit coming back. Right? Hinduism is all about reincarnation. You keep coming back, you keep coming back. Buddha said, I hate that, because every time you come back, it's a terrible life. So he said, I think the goal is to not come back again. And he decided that enlightenment was what kept you from coming back. And so that's what Buddhism is about. You reach a place of enlightenment where you don't, you're not inhibited by the flesh anymore. Think about all the science fiction movies, which are about how the more evolved a species we become, the less our bodies matter, right? We become pure energy. Haven't you seen those movies? Am I the only one who's seen those movies? Okay. <laughs> Star Trek did that all the time. And, and movies today still do that, where it's all about just beca- uh, 2010, Space Odyssey, same thing. It's all about pure energy as kind of the ultimate evolution. But it's interesting because Christianity tells us two things. It tells us that Jesus was God and actually came in actual physical flesh. That somehow the very transcendent nature of God was able to be kept in flesh, which is a mystery. And number two, that we will be resurrected in bodily form. That's actually relevant. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't you know, refuse to associate with the church that didn't believe that, but I think it's really relevant. I think it's really important, actually. And Jesus did when he rose again. What did he say to Thomas? Touch, feel it. Feel my hands. Feel my sides. Now, it's a weird sort of body because he can also walk through walls. But it's still a body. So the clear point of Christianity is the flesh in itself is not evil. This is one reason I talk so much about this when I talk about new identity. It's not just because it's a theological nicety, but because the idea of the flesh being evil in and of itself is not in Scripture. It's in Gnostic heresies. And if you argue that the flesh is evil then you cannot argue that God came in fleshly form. And if you can't argue that God came in fleshly form, you can't argue that he died. And if you can't argue that he died, says Paul, then you're left with nothing. You've got, you've got nothing there. And so the Gnostic heresy did say that Jesus either was never in flesh, it was just an illusion, or he shed his flesh. He reached a point where he no longer needed his flesh because he had become so enlightened. And Paul spends a lot of time when you look through how he describes Christ and he talks about the fullness of the deity in him and he talks about the body and he talks about all these things that attach it to physical form. You begin to realize he's describing this incredible mystery. But the mystery he's talking about is how transcendent God could fit in little body. And I just had the image of Aladdin. You guys remember? Uh... Cosmic power! Right. So, so if I had that, I would have shown that right at that moment. But, um, but that's kind of the idea. How, how, can, how can all that have happened? And that's the mystery of the incarnation. That's why the early church said, wow, Christmas is something we ought to celebrate the, the incarnation because it's an unbelievable thing. And it's a necessary precursor to the, to the death. Because if he wasn't physical, he didn't die. So that's why it is a big deal. So that's part of the heresy. So you'll see that as we go through it. You'll see that. Judaizers, you mentioned that. The idea that you have to be circumcised. So you've got this kind of Gnostic, Jewish, Judaizer, angel worship heresy going on, which is why people are like, who knows what they were up to? (laughs) You can kind of see how angel worship might fit in there. You might begin to see angels as the most enlightened because they're basically without body, you might say. Maybe maybe it's even a... uh, highway to heaven type of thing where when you die, you become an angel. You know, maybe, maybe that's how they saw it, where you, you kind of shed your body and you become angelic and so it's a way of worshiping yourself. I don't know. We don't know. Because that is the only thing he says about it in the whole letter. Isn't that weird? He just drops it in there, which tells us two things. One, I think he didn't want to get distracted, right? And two, it was prevalent enough to them he didn't need to explain it. That's what's weird to me is that he didn't have to say, now some of you probably haven't even heard of this, but some of you are out there worshiping angels, and that's just weird. <laughs> he doesn't even say that. He's just like, don't let them deceive you by the worship of angels. And you're like, we hadn't even thought of that one yet, you know, <laughs> but apparently they had. So it's just, it's a weird thing. And I do think it's probably not a worship of real angels. I think it's a worship of whatever they've dreamed up in their head. You know, I, I guess that's similar. Our culture does some of that, doesn't it? <laughs> Actually, it's that idea of spirituality that we do like. And by the way, Gnosticism is a very spiritual type of heresy. People do like it for that reason. I do believe, you know, in our culture, for the last generation, 
science and modernism and materialism was probably the biggest hurdle for evangelism. I think in our day, I don't think it's that. I think it's spirituality. We need to understand spirituality. We need to tell them that, yes, Christian, we, need to, we need to embrace spirituality in the right way so that we don't fight like Paul would do. We need to relate to that aspect to them. Say, totally, I'm into spirituality too. Let me, let me tell you how, about how it works. But at the same time, I think Gnosticism is kind of the call of the hour. I think we are back to a Gnostic spiritual enlightenment, personal existential experience religion. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. It's got to be more complicated. Yeah, it's got to take a lot of effort. And, oh, asceticism, we didn't talk about that specifically, but the denial of yourself is a very much a Gnostic idea because you're denying the flesh. So if the flesh is evil, you deny the flesh, that's part of how you become holy. It's like Buddha. Stories tell us Buddha would fast for mammoth amounts of time. Um, and, and, again, if all the stories are be to believed, you know, increasingly to where he was near death's door, then someone would force him to eat and he'd get mad at them for making him eat. You know, because I was almost there. You were almost dead. Yeah, I was almost there. You know, it's interesting. We don't know what's true about Buddha anyway. What's that? Isn't that funny? That's actually, that's really funny because he probably was never fat. First of all, where he grew up, nobody was fat. That was part of his problem. I think that's probably it, yeah. That is funny, the whole Buddha's belly thing, yeah. But it was good. That's funny. That's funny. We don't. We don't understand that the way you do here. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I could see even even in Ethiopia, I could see it meaning that. You know, I could see totally see someone going, "Man, you are fat," and they'd be like, "That's so good," you know. Because that's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, somebody over here had something? Sure. Sure. That's good. And I think even when he goes into detail about the creation and Jesus being behind everything, there may also, that may also deal somewhat with the angel worship. I don't know, but maybe, the, maybe they had a structure in their head where the angels together created things. You know what I mean? So he's like, nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> it was just Jesus. Just Jesus. Any other, any other, I, you guys did great. You did fantastic. I think you hit everything that I would have hit on. Um, anything else, though, that you see that maybe I wouldn't have hit on? that I didn't think about. Anything else you see him write about that you think, oh, that's a, uh, that he may be addressing a particular heresy there. Okay. Sure, sure. And I think that's true. And I think he's also trying to make a personal connection with them since he doesn't know them. You know, when you don't know somebody, but you're trying to share with them, you do that sometimes. You're like, oh, I know this person, that person, that person. You know, I do it all the time now. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning the value. I, 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 I think I told you guys a few weeks ago, I just uh, call it a leading of the Holy Spirit or an impetus, whichever God works through it. Pulled into a Lutheran church, knocked on the door, said, hey, I'd like to tell you about a conference I do. The guy was like, whatever. I was like, so... I did one for Leslie Helga. He was like, Leslie, I love Leslie. Come on in. So it was great. I was like, wow, that was providential. <laughs> I mean, literally, it was like that. I was just like, I dropped my wife off somewhere, and I was going to work. I was like, I'm just going to go see if they're, I'm just going to try it, whatever. And then the guy knew Leslie, and he loves Leslie, and he's like all over it. He was like, she did your conference? Then it must be good. I was like, cool. 
shall I have her call you and make the arrangements? You know, I was just like, whatever. So we'll see. We'll see. I, it hasn't, we haven't set a date, but it was definitely open doors. Um, and that, you know, Paul's doing some of that differently. He doesn't need it the way I did, but, but he's, uh, he's doing some of that. All right. Um, let's see. Look at that. I lost all our notes. Anyway, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's cool. Well, you guys did great. There's a lot of meaty stuff. We will still go through Colossians. But now as we do it, I think a lot of that you're just going to see. And and so we may, you know, some of these things we may not spend a lot of time on because you already know, you know, but, but. I I set out once to memorize the first chapter of Colossians. I got about halfway through and I didn't do it. I, I'm going to go back to doing it because it's just an amazing description of the centrality of Christ. It's really, really good, I think. And so, you know, I would encourage you guys between now and next week, read through, read through that first chapter. If you want to read through all of Colossians again, you can. I once read, um, it might have been Chuck Colson, <coughs> I can't remember, who said, this is how he studies the Bible. Um, and I've adopted a lot of this, which is why we did this tonight. He says, first thing he does is he reads straight through whatever the letter of the book he's going to do, even if it's Genesis. Just read straight through it, all the way through. Because it is a big picture, and he wants to get the big picture. And he says he reads through it, and what he does is he reads through it every day for a week. He'll just read through it every day for a week, and he won't stop to ask questions yet. Just reads through it. Then at the end of that, he goes back and he reads through it again the next week, and he stops himself, and he asks questions, and he explores it. And he says, he finds, that a lot of things just make a lot more sense. <laughs> you just said, because you know, you, you're familiar with what's coming. You're familiar with where we are. And I, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, so I knew this was a short book, and I knew that, I don't know if I would have had enough voice to carry the whole thing tonight anyway. Um, uh, so I appreciate you guys doing it, but I hope it was also helpful and interesting for you guys tonight. So that's our introduction to Colossians, and we'll pick up next week with Colossians 1. Fair enough? Excellent. Thank you guys for coming.